0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno.
1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, one I'm very excited about, get to talk to another one of our Air Force Combat Controllers. These guys are complete... Badasses, we'll get to them in just a moment but I want to take a couple of quick moments to remind you about our promotion with amazon as the holidays are coming up and if you have to do some holiday shopping or any regular shopping through amazon make sure you guys go to our website hazardground.com click on the amazon button at the bottom of the home page or on the sponsors tab it'll redirect your rate right to amazon you do all your shopping we get a percentage of what you guys spend and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations featured here on the hazard ground works also from your smartphone very simple keeps all your credit card information directs you right to the app so it's really easy really user-friendly and a great way for you to help out veterans all across america from the comfort of your own home and on your smartphone as well while you're on that smartphone follow us on all the social media sites facebook twitter and instagram at hazard ground, at hazard ground podcast keep up with the show you can leave us messages there guest suggestions everything so, follow us on social as well. Please leave, continue to leave Apple reviews. In fact, I met somebody the other day who is a fan of my podcast and listens every single week. And I asked, Did you do your Apple podcast review yet? And he's like, No, I got to do it. I got to do Please do the Apple podcast review because it helps to grow the Hazard Ground community as we try to get closer to the top 100 Apple podcasts. And you guys certainly can help out that way. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and as well, uh, our good, pra- our partners and great friends at Kilcliff. Make sure you download the Kilcliff TV app because you can get all of our podcasts there as well. And don't forget about Kilcliff.com. Great, uh, amazing, all natural energy drinks, including their new. And I'm holding it right here just for you to see. Their Kilcliff Octane CBD killer cliff sickle uh this is one of their newest drinks out it's fantastic uh the flavor is amazing make sure you guys check out all their cbd product products clean energy all the way through Killcliff. i drink these before my workout after my workout all the time they are fantastic again KillCliff.com. check them out there all right uh, let's get on to this week's episode and our guest who spent 30 years in the united states air force 25 of it in the special operations community as a combat controller He's got over 10 deployments, 11, 12, somewhere in the range of a dozen deployments. It's too many to count uh, throughout his career. And he was awarded a Silver Star for his actions in Afghanistan in the very beginning of the war during the invasion. In his post-military career, uh, he was the former director of, director of operations rather, for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. And he is currently the CEO and founder of Project One Vet at a Time. He's also the re- executive director of the Patriot Fund. He is Command Chief, Master Sergeant, retired William Markham, joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Uh, it's a long title and a lengthy resume, William, but welcome and thank you for being here.
0: Hey, Mark, thank you very much. Yeah, a lot of a lot of titles in there, but uh, what it all comes down to is uh, service members after their service still continuing to fight for the rights and benefits of the veterans and their families.
1: 100%, you know, and I said it in the intro. I, I, I got to tell you, my, my bias as an Army guy comes through. And the more I, I do this podcast and the more that I've talked to Air Force combat controller guys, like I always kinda knew with you guys were on the periphery uh of being badasses, but it's legit badasses. And I was having this conversation with a with a Navy guy of mine and I was I was explaining to him. I was I was telling him that I was gonna interview you for the show. And I am so like ground combat oriented thinking, right? Like in my my experience, you know I'm always worried about the ground in front of me and as I you know grow senior in rank and they start to send me more military courses you learn about a three-dimensional battlefield and they always talk to you about it and how important it is but the idea of what you guys do simply put when chaos is going on around you literally that you have the patience the time the training and the skill to call in precision airstrikes and support people on the battlefield to me it's, it's like a skill I can't comprehend man. Like, I mean that in all sincerity. It's just something that would not be in my skill set to be able to not have a fat trigger finger or not be shaking or whatever, you know, because my mind just works a thousand miles a minute like my mouth does, as you can see. But it's just, <laughs> I just want to tip my cap to you guys. I mean, it really is. It's such an important job in the military. And we often forget about you guys in the Air Force. But really, uh, I mean, it's just it's one of those jobs that um, they don't really tell you about when they talk about the Air Force at all.
0: Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I, I knew nothing about it when I joined the Air Force. I, I absolutely knew nothing about it. The only thing I really knew about was a little bit of pararescue, Going through basic training, um, but the medical side—I I mean, the sight of blood makes me sick. Uh, <laughs> any type of medical training, TCCC, C, anything, self aid, and buddy care. Man, I get sick to my stomach. I can barely get through it. I used to have to have our trainers, you know, pencil whip me through that stuff just so I could, so I could pass it. But yeah, combat control was uh, pretty quiet. Um, it wasn't until uh unfortunately the the accident in, in ramstein in 1988 uh i got to meet uh some combat controllers when i got over to germany and and you know just some uh cool dudes walking around with uh some nice sunglasses and you know it's always the sunglasses and a
1: polo shirt and- it's always the sunglasses right <laughs> yeah, you always know an operated by you know. your sunglasses for whatever reason whether it was the m frames back in the in the beginning days of it <laughs> or now you get the cool ones it's always the it's always the glasses
0: yeah, we'd always see the uh, 10 special forces we coming up from bad tolls, you know, flying out of Ramstein yeah. to go do great, wonderful things for, you know, countries over in Europe. And uh, it was always a combat controller or a pair of assigned to them. And, man, I had to find out what they did and found out what they did. And I was like, man, I got to do that because counting rivets on uh, B-52s and KC-135s and walking the gap and, you know, working working with people that, you know, really weren't in the same fundamental mindset as me. and. Uh, I had to find something different, but uh, yeah, combat control was where it's at. And you had uh, you had said something about being a badass. And Mark, man, we're you're just part of the team, and that's what makes special sure. operations, and that's what makes teamwork so well. Is you're just you're just one of the guys or one of the gals that are you know bringing that specialty to the fight, and you know everybody's got their specialty. Everybody's got something that they they know a little bit more than the other person. But you cross train that information across the field and. Man, you got a highly effective, motivated team that gets to gets to bring the the bear of everything we have within our power systems and our weapon systems to the fight.
1: No, hundred percent. I've said that exact same thing several times on the show. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to deploy uh, with Green Berets. I'm not tabbed, but I just got lucky and got an assignment. And one of the the biggest takeaway I've learned from that, uh, which was the highlight of my, my military career. Uh, because I've said it a hundred times, if you laid out all the assignments in Iraq for a mid-grade captain and said, pick one, Mark, I couldn't have picked a better one on my own. I just got very, very lucky. But I learned the value of, of being a role player. I learned the value of your piece of the pie. Uh, and I say this all the time that, you know, everybody's got their piece of the pie. Somebody's yep. piece may be bigger. Somebody's piece may have more importance. But you don't make the whole pie without every piece of the pie um so own your piece of the pie whatever it is and 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 make sure that you're doing your piece of the pie and like you said it's just one part of the, of the whole thing um that makes us successful so uh, agree 100 percent. but you signed you signed up all the way back in the mid 80s right like you got in this thing way before 911.
0: oh man it was uh it was June 9th 1986 it was my 18th birthday the day after graduation I you know we just heard about that unfortunate uh you know parade that Christmas parade accident and tragedy that happened in walkie show Wisconsin that was my hometown you know oh wow we had three foundries in town and uh an asphalt business so that was my future coming out of high school I wasn't going to go to college I didn't have the grades for it I didn't have the motivation for it um I just wanted to at the time join the closest thing to being a civilian and uh my counselor and the recruiter said well then you need to join the air force and so it yeah 18th birthday one day out of high school joined the air force.
1: Yeah. So you had no idea you were getting into though. Nobody else in your family. I had, had, but- I had
0: no idea. I was going to be a, I was going to be an inventory specialist, you know, a supply guy. And you know, that's how you find out all the new gears and on a team, you go, we see the supply guy, and He's walking around with the new watch and you're like, Oh, new watches are. And he's like, well, oh, I took the last one. So yeah, I was going to be <laughs> one of those guys. And unfortunately failed the test to be a supply guy. And, uh, ended up being a cop.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Security forces, good old stuff. So when did you, when and how did you learn about combat control and and what it was?
0: Yeah, it wasn't, I I was stationed in California, um, up in Sacramento, at their air force base, got an assignment over to, to Ramstein, Germany and, uh, late of 1988, got over there in 1989, right after the, uh, the Italian, uh, jet crash during the air show. And, uh, there was just a lot of, um, You know, a lot of, a lot of like special operations going on at the time. We were getting ready to kick off for Panama. We're getting ready to kick off for the Gulf War. And then, you know, Ramstein and Frankfurt were the hub of air operations. And you're out there, you know, guarding those C fives, those C 41s at the time. So obviously I'm dating myself. Um, But these, these uh, 10 special forces group guys would come up from, uh, from Bad Tolst, Germany and, the combat controllers from the Rhine mine air base, you know, and, uh, the PJs, uh, coming over from England as, you know, air force special operations. It was, it was unheard of. And, you know, the the silent professionals back in the day when people actually had to be silent about what they did, or, you know, they got booted out of the military, but, uh, I met these guys and I I was just like, man, this is something I would really like to do. And, and, uh, found, uh, found an old first sergeant and, uh, He was a former combat controller, Roby Robertson, uh, one of the first African-American combat controllers at that. Uh, He told me all about it. He showed me a recruiting video. Um, It was basically the same thing that the pararescue guys did uh, through their training, but uh, they were certified air traffic controllers. They were the air-to-ground interface, just like you were talking about on the battlefield, that 3D picture on the battlefield being that airman and providing that air-to-ground integration. um, It just really... uh, it, it, it just really spoke to me. And it's something I, I uh, trained hard for. Um, I was able to complete the training and then uh, right around my fifth year in the Air Force, I uh, uh, completed the training and uh, became a combat controller.
1: So once you did that, did you have any idea at the time what you were in for from the standpoint of, I mean, this is, again, the early 90s, we're well through Vietnam, right? I mean, the Gulf War was in the blink of an eye, all things considered, uh, which you, you missed, correct? You did not, you didn't go to uh, Saudi for the Gulf? No. Nope. Nope. So we're at a time now where it's like, okay, well, what's your mission? Do you do you have an idea of like, you know, what the next couple of years of your career are going to be like? Or are you just happy that you're not uh, in security forces anymore?
0: <laughs> well, I was, I was truly happy I wasn't in security forces. <laughs> and nothing against our, our defenders, man. They're They are the peacekeepers of the, of the, uh, of the air force, the gateway, um, without those guys and gals, you know, our aircraft, our service members, you know, on the base wouldn't be safe. Um, and they, and today, uh, they got some incredible leaders that are doing incredible things for them. So I'm not knocking the, uh, the cop career field at all. They are, they are truly professionals, you know, within our ranks and within our profession of arms, but man, it just, I wanted to do something else. And, um, uh, once I got into combat control, the 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 biggest thing was just trying not to get my ass handed to my you know to myself. I was a, a cocky young airman. I wasn't the best airman. I wasn't the I wasn't the best human. I wasn't the best father, and I wasn't uh, obviously the best husband. And so I just wanted to be good at something, and so I just tried to be a good combat controller. I would keep my mouth shut, keep my ears open, and listen to the uh, veterans. You know, that had been in Desert Storm, the veterans that had been to Grenada, the, the, the veterans, you know, and service guys, my team sergeants that had jumped into Panama um, and then just did great things. Uh, while I was going through combat diver school down in Key West, um, ironic story with Greg McCormick, the team sergeant of 555 Triple Nickel when we went into Afghanistan, but we were swim team. Uh, we were paired as a swim team together. And uh, Mogadishu kicked off and we just had a big veterans charity golf event in uh, Naples um, for the Patriot Fund, which benefited a bunch of the other veteran nonprofits, including Project Ovat. But we had Kenny Thomas. Kenny Thomas was yep. assigned to 75th Ranger Battalion at that time. He was our guest speaker and a good personal friend of mine. But he started talking about Mogadishu and it took me back to being in Key West and going through dive school, combat diver school. And like, Oh man, we missed it. You know, I've missed the Gulf war. I've missed, uh, Panama. I've missed Mogadishu. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm going to be a, a peacetime special operator, which is, you know, kind of like the cop that never got to draw his gun um, or <laughs> face a situation. and uh, Or like the guy in the he,
1: minors who never got called up to the majors. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I was, you know, going to be on the minor league. I was going to be, that airman and that NCO going out to the drop zone and, you know, working the drop drop zone out at Ranger camp, you know, camp rudder jumping in the Rangers from uh, mountain phase in the jungle phase, you know, doing the JRXs and the JCTs and Ranger injuries and deploying with the seals. And, you know, is this going to be a training mission for the next 20 years? I would probably get out at 20 years and, you know, retire, hopefully a master Sergeant the way I was going, probably a staff Sergeant. And, uh, Man, it just—it's just funny how life goes, and the people you get connected to, and you know, being that one airman attached to a Navy SEAL team, an Army Special Forces team, or the Rangers, or you know, with the with the government agency, it's just—you it, it, can, you're you're your own boss, and, and uh, your work ethic is, you know, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it.
1: All right, so without uh I guess we kind of can fast forward 9 years to 911 um from when you, you know, get into the combat controller world. And again, I know you just kind of mentioned some of the things that you did do along the way, but where are you on 911 and kind of uh the the background and what happens immediately after?
0: Well, just uh, mark just two things real quick sure. prior to 911. I you know, I, I think every operator kind of makes a name for themselves and something that they do or something that they've done or the people they've been associated with. And right before nine 11, you know, we had, we had the war in Bosnia going on. We had uh, Liberia and Africa right. going on. And, and I was just really fortunate to be one of those guys in the wrong place at the wrong time and got to go over to Liberia and, and uh, open up the embassy over there to get a bunch of uh, Neo VACs, you know, out of there with uh, the 10th group guys out of, out of Europe. And then, um. Uh, you know Bosnia the the Ron Brown crash the Secretary of uh, Commerce you know his his plane crashed you know just so happened right after Hillary Clinton got off it and you know apparently he was going to say some bad things about Hillary and and the, and the jet went down and I guess I'm retired long enough now I can I can state my opinion like that but um, you know we had to go in me and two fast rope into uh, a mountainside to, you know, identify and recover, you know, 33 dead bodies. Um, wow. so kind of established that, you know, I I, I, I not, I'm not tooting my horn or anything like that, but I established myself that man I can be depended on and, you know, in the work environment, not sure. in a personal or social environment, I couldn't be dependent on, but, um, definitely in the work environment. And I had great leaders like Kurt Bowler, um, uh, you know, just just incredible leaders that that I looked up to, and, and incredible team sergeants that I looked up to, Mike Ramos and uh, peers. You know, Doug McClure, um, uh, Doug Moore, uh, uh, man, just great guys. And and then that kind of led to to nine eleven. Nine eleven was uh, was kind of a fluke. Uh, we found ourselves training with uh, Marine warrant officers out in Tonopah and up in North Vegas and. We were doing, you know, really kind of what we were getting ready for Afghanistan. We were riding mule. We were doing high altitude the opening jumps into, you know, uh, the foothills. We were uh, going long distances to do close air support on, a, on a, a, a direct high value target. And this started in April before 9-11. And then, once you know, we'd come back from that training and and boom, the planes hit the towers. Plane hits the Pentagon, plane goes into a field in Pennsylvania. And man, we didn't know what we were going to do, where we were going to do it, or how we were going to do it, but we knew we were going to go do something. And at that point, I think everybody, I think you look back at that 20 years ago and and our, not only our nation, but man, our, our military, our, you look at the joint training. Now we're better than we've ever been. And it's because of nine 11 and good, bad, or indifferent, however you feel about that. Um, our military is the best it's ever been because of nine 11. And when we say joint, we truly say joint. And it was, it was airmen, sailors, uh, soldiers, um, you know, coming together as one and, and, uh, going and putting some hate on people that needed it.
1: No. And, and certainly, I mean, again, I, I, uh, one I, I would point out as you said the uh, going back to your, your time in, in Bosnia and the time where you you've proved yourself, I, I have learned that about a lot of operators in general. They all want the opportunity because it is a rite of passage to sort of be given responsibility within a team. It's so hard to get there, right? And once yeah. you actually get to that spot, all you want to do is show all your teammates that you actually belong there, that you're not just somebody who could pass a course where, for all intents and purposes, everything is relatively safe. You want the opportunity to prove and download all the knowledge that you have, and so I, 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 by all means, I, I certainly get that. That's not patting yourself on the back or telling a story that you know people need to hear. There, There is that real thing within the special operations community, whether it's SEALs, Green Berets, whatever it may be. All those guys want the opportunity once they get there to show that they are worth their metal and can be trusted because honestly, that's how you guys operate, right? Like th- that level of trust needs to be earned. It doesn't matter how many schools you went to and what you've learned. Um, guys want to know that ultimately when push comes to shove, uh, that you'll do the right thing when, when chaos is surrounding you. So I certainly, certainly understand that. Yeah. Uh, Any
0: Anytime you come off a target or you come off a training mission and you have a, you have a mentor or a boss that you completely idolize or look up to and if they can, if they can look at you and say, hey, you did a good job, but you know, and give you that critical feedback to make yourself better, you know, that's what you want. And and that's like you said, that I think that's what every I think that's what I think that's what everyone wants. I don't think that just falls to an operator. I think that falls to everybody in our combat support roles and you know, to being a civilian and nothing against our civilian population out there. I, there was a better selection and assessment process for you, the world would be a better place, but sure. <laughs> You know, we we want to we wanna come off that that training exercise or that or that target. And you know, we want to be able to give each other critical feedback to make ourselves better. But when you get that mentor or that leader that you really respect and they look at you in the eye and tell you that you did a good job, and then give you that critical feedback, that's that that that's a in itself. There's no there's no decoration, there's no rank, there's no money out there that could ever replace that.
1: 100%. All right. So 9-11 happens and you are now quickly thrust into the fight. What are you hearing in the days, weeks after? Uh, obviously, you know, uh, as I said at the outset, you're there for the invasion, um, which was, I think, around October 7th when it initially started. But uh, what are you initially hearing and, and do you have an idea of how quickly you're going to be moving?
0: Well, we uh, I was at the 23rd Special Tactics Squadron at the time out of Herbert Field and uh our teams were, our teams were kind of posed to, or poised to um, set up uh, combat search and rescue with a, um, with a ground force. So probably team up with our special forces partners in country. Uh, we deployed over to Karshi Combat K2. Um, we were one of the first aircraft in, uh, myself and a couple other teammates, Dennis Bernier, Pat Ward. We established the airhead there at K2, started landing C-17s and, you know, bringing in the force. Uh, our unit immediately immediately established the combat search and rescue um, uh, stature. Uh, Task Force One Sixtieth came in with their um, everything from the uh, DAPS to forty um, sevens to sixties. Uh, Fifth Special Forces Group showed up immediately. Went in isolation, and uh, we we kind of stood up the you know ready to you know pull out any any bomber pilot or jet pilot, you know, that may have gone down in Afghanistan, but there was still another, another turn. And it was called unconventional warfare where we would put in, uh, small groups of special operations teams into Afghanistan, teamed up with their CIA counterparts and then teamed up with the Northern Alliance. And this had already been in the works for, you know, a couple of years now because the agency had been in country, uh, living out of the Panjir Valley for some time. And, um, Man, my uh, again, my 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 mentors, my leaders that I completely respected. Uh, I don't know if it was maybe a way to get rid of me, but they called me into our uh, our kind of our C two our our headquarters tent and to said, "Hey, uh, Charlie Mike, that was my operating initials. We're going to send you in with uh, we're going to tie you up with um, fifth special forces group team." You're going to be the the, at the time we called it SOTAC, Special Operations Terminal Attack Controller. Now the, now the term is JTAC, Joint Terminal Attack Controller. But you're going to be the SOTAC assigned to that team to provide air support. Um, and uh, good luck.
1: And wasn't <laughs> sure if that was
0: their way to try to get rid of me for all the shenanigans I had put them through in years past. And the crappy airmen that I used to be. Um, but uh, I went over to an isolation tent, walked in the tent, and uh, uh, got teamed up with the, the, the famous, the famous uh, Triple Nickel. And, uh, man, it, it, it changed my life. I, like I said, I ran into Greg McCormick, who was the team sergeant, who happened to be my swim buddy going through uh, dive school in 1993. And immediately the bona fides was uh, established because Greg looked at everybody and said – Remember the guy I told you about pulling me through uh, the water, going through dive school the entire time? That's him. And uh, I had a fellow uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, Scott Zastro uh, on the team. And then I had gone through uh, Halo Jump Master with another uh, former member, uh, Frank Gabriardo, our our intel guy, our Fox on the team. So, you know, there's still butt sniffing, you know, as, as we bring on uh, enabling forces and uh, supporters. There's always going to be the butt sniffing of what's going on, but
1: right. that was
0: it. And we established and uh, started briefing and um, by God's goodwill, we were selected as the first team to go in Afghanistan. And and man, it was just, it was surreal, right. scary, but surreal.
1: So let's kind of set the scene as you get there. Uh, because ultimately, again, the, the events leading up to, as I said at the outset, you'd be awarded a silver star for. So, you end up going to where first, like from, I guess from your home base in the United States, you go somewhere first and then move towards the Middle East or, or how does it kind of all go?
0: Yeah, we, we finally, uh, we finally deployed out of Herbert Field, Florida, up mm-hmm. in the panhandle. Um, we get over to yeah, Spain. I think we, I think we landed in Spain. We were stuck in Spain. It was a, it was a C5 crew. So, you know, the crew obviously wanted to take in the the, the sites and tours and the women and alcohol of Spain. And so we were stuck there for a couple of days. And I, I say that jokingly. I love my, I love my air force crew members because they got the best job in the air force. Um, and then we get over to uh, K2. We land, it was a C-17. I'm sorry. We, we uh, take a C-17 and, you know, by about the, the fourth day into the deployment, we land at, at K2 and then, uh, from K2, we spent a couple of weeks there. And then I believe it was October 13th or 14th. Mm-hmm. And uh I'm just sort of finally-
1: curious, Will, real quick. When you're flying over to Spain, or when you're flying from Spain to, to K2, and that's Uzbekistan, by the way, who, who don't know. uh yes. Karshi Kanabad Air Base in Uzbekistan. What's the conversations like with other people in general? I mean, is there just a sense of looking around like, holy shit, I can't believe we're doing this, like kind of deal? Or is it... You know, is everybody just focused operationally? Do you remember any of those sort of interactions with with teammates and, and other guys you were with?
0: Well, like I said, we were going over there initially to establish the airfield there and run airfield ops until, a, until a, you know, an, an Air Force uh, expedition team could come over and take over the airfield for us. So we were studying everything that there was on the runway, which runways we would be using, what the airspace was like, you know, what to use Becky's head you know, used. Um, Thankfully, we had a special forces group team on the ground there already that was conducting a FID mission, uh, a FID exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We had some Air Force members over there that were providing that air to ground interface during that mission. So uh, we we had some intel going in, but um, also, like I said, we were going to establish the uh, combat search and rescue. So it's It's a combat controller and two PJs with a ground force element, whether that be Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces, uh, Army Rangers, uh, conventional Army uplift, um, you know, to today to using Air Force cops. Um, So we were kind of deciding between the leadership um, of the of the unit and then the leadership of the teams, you know, who and what teams would be established, because we had sent half of our forces down to Pakistan to set up um, uh, the other task force that was going on down there. We would be task force Dagger in the north and then uh, the other task force in the south. So the, a lot of the conversation was, you know, kind of everything we had been training up for was, you know, the combat search and rescue. You know, the, the, the PJs exercising all their abilities to be the, 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 the trauma medics and then the controllers working on. You know everything air to, air to ground interface close air support surveys uh running the nine lines you know being able to get the, the meta back in uh to looking at the, the the intel reports of if a pilot did eject where would they eject what mountain would they be stuck on you know uh the worst case scenario stuff so it was just it was mission planning the whole way i mean a lot of guys you know, a lot of guys got some got some rack time, and everybody just keeps tweaking their gear. But uh, on the leadership side, in which I was uh, part of the leadership team, you know, we we started planning what we we're going to do. The unconventional uh, mindset or the unconventional mission of going in uh, and doing doing that type of warfare was was not even a was not even a question to us. It wasn't even an idea to us at the time.
1: So, how quickly do you get from Uzbekistan into actually Afghanistan?
0: Uh, it, it it had been I I think about we we finally got into country around October first. Okay, um, you know after our our Spain vacation, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then we attempted I believe the the night of the tenth or the eleventh. And then we attempted again to get in. Just weather was not going to let, you know, taking 247s over the Hindu Kush and get into the Panzer Valley uh, from Uzbekistan was just not going to happen safely. Uh, we had to strip all the armor off. Well, not we, but task force had to strip off all the armor off the aircraft. We had to go as light as possible. You know, we were basically given, hey, you can go in with a backpack then you'll get resupplied later. It was a little bit of time to uh to, to get in there um but i think i think it was like the 13th or 14th of october we finally got in the country um but again then the the mission's changing from unconventional warfare to you're going to be the close air support specialist what's the likelihood we're going to use close air support i mean really think about it i i i, I doubted it i'm like man i'm just going to be the guy turning good food into poop and you know, carrying all the heavy stuff because um, that's usually what I end up doing. You know, what? what is the possibility that, you know, our country, we're actually going to be allowed to release ordnance off of aircraft onto human beings, the enemy, the target, but human beings. Like what is, the, the, the agency had been in Afghanistan for three years trying to take out bin Laden. They, they told us when we got in there we've been trying to do close air support for the last three years and uh, we haven't been able to do it. Clinton didn't allow it. So how are we, you know, how are we going to be able to do close air support? So I think there was a lot of doubt in a lot of guys' minds, but once we got in the country, our rules of engagement. And I think you look at it as they said, our leaders told us, Hey, you have six months to take Bagram and move into Kabul. And we did it in 25 days. And the only way we did that is because our rules of engagement were this.
1: Wow. Well, from that standpoint, uh, you get uh, near Kabul. uh, And it's uh, October 14th to November, the end of November in 2001. Um, You you guys are on the ground there uh, and just, you know, raising all hell and fury. Uh, on the Taliban at that point in time, um, but let's talk about October 21st, 2001, specifically, uh, and the events. What happened? Um, you know, when you get on ground and the arrival of uh, your guys, and how you had to lead a, a close air support uh, recon mission. Well, we
0: we uh, we got on the ground. We had we had good intel from our uh, CIA counterparts and our you know then working with the Northern Alliance. We had. Russian 1951 maps we had uh probably the best thing and we briefed this to the DARPA and the you know DOD afterwards you know we had the little yellow Garmin GPS because that was the thing to use at the time instead of the plugger it was more accurate um but we just got in and you know we functioned as a team we you know I yeah I was the I was the close air support specialist. You know, I was the, the subject matter expert, which not much of an expert at, at the time. And uh, and we just made it happen. We had the confidence and credibility uh, that we earned um, as teammates. Uh, we planned out our missions. We, we looked and we not only um, trusted our Northern Alliance counterparts of where the enemy was, but we actually verified where the enemy was. And then we conducted the first uh, close air support missions uh, in Afghanistan and had a devastating effect on on the enemy. Um,
1: how how does it all play out, though? I mean, I, obviously, you don't know when you're going to get into, you know, contact with the enemy. I mean, obviously, you, you expect it, but kind of break it down for me. Take me through the, you know, the very beginning of it. Well, it's.
0: It's an entire team. I mean, you have to go right. all the way up to the Air Operations Center, the AOC. We had uh, we had special tactics officers that were working in the AOC that uh, developed their credibility and trust amongst the air planners to actually send aircraft into Afghanistan with a close air support mind that, hey, there are actually Americans on the ground that they will talk to and they will direct them on target. And in the years past, close air support was never the primary training mission of any airborne weapon system. They would either simulate it or they were just so canned on a range that, you know, they just, they knew exactly where they had to put guns or bombs. And so a lot of times when the aircraft showed up, they were very surprised to hear that, you know, here's an American team on the ground ready to direct them where to put their, their guns and bombs. But uh, again, it takes the entire team. We, you know, I had, my, my team, Sergeant Bart Decker, uh, a, a teammate of mine, Alan Yoshida, um, uh, good men in positions to build the confidence of those sure. headquarters elements of those operation centers, the tactical operation center, the air operation center, um, to let them feel comfortable about pushing aircraft into country and that there was a team on the ground to conduct close air support and then amongst my team having the bona fides and credibility already with the team sergeant, not so much with the team captain. Dan Runyon was, uh, was uh, not the most spectacular team leader. I'm sure he became a a good man, a good husband, and uh, a good team leader afterwards, but him coming right out of the Q course and being forced into the situation he was, uh, he wasn't set up for success. And he had a very, experienced team sergeant, even more experienced warrant officer, uh, Dan Diaz, that had been in Afghanistan in the 80s when we were supplying the, um, you know, the Afghans with uh, weapons to fight the Russians. Uh, he just was was, uh, was not ready for what we were about to do and, and unfortunately got relieved of duty. Um, and then the, the warrant officer took the team over. And, and you need that team dynamic. Again, you need that sure. feedback. So it just was, it was just surreal. We, we worked together as a team. Scott Zastro and Steve Gruel, the medics on the team, became my, you know, my, my second and my third on the radio because they were very good on the radio. And we did close air support 24-7, seven days a week for 25 days.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and your citation talks about uh, over 175 sorties. Uh, destroying approximately 450 vehicles and and over 3,500 enemy troops. So this is a daily thing that's going on for you, you know, (laughs) over the course of of days and weeks. But your particular experience, I mean, whether it was the first one you called in or whatever, uh, explain just for everybody to sort of paint the picture. Where are you? Where are the guys on ground? How does the conversation go back and forth? And then how do you relay that up to guys way above in an aircraft?
0: Man, we just we uh we we worked our way down from the Panzer Valley, got um got in a roundabout uh you know Bagram Air Base area and everybody knows Bagram. I'll tell you what, Bagram was much better when there was only, you know, thirteen Americans and having it. We didn't have the, <laughs> the the first sergeant and sergeant major police, you know, looking for reflective belts
1: yeah. on Disney
0: Highway. But
1: <laughs> but we, we found it, you know. <laughs>
0: Where is a combat controller going to be most at home? That's a certified air traffic controller. Man, the tower. So right. we took to the tower. The, the Northern Alliance guys were able to um, make that area clear. Uh, we worked our way to the tower. We had, we had the advantage over the enemy. The enemy was just on the other side of the runway, um, just a couple hundred meters away. And that was the Taliban strong point. That was their front line. And the west side of the airfield was the Northern Alliance front line. And then we just, um, you know, systematically through strike aircraft uh, bomb key positions of Taliban strong points and Taliban headquarters elements and Taliban C2 elements and Taliban um, convoys coming up the John Wayne pass from Kabul. And then um, the CIA asked me, Hey, how can we be more effective? And we, we, can, we asked and asked and asked for a B fifty two strike or a B one strike, and we kept getting denied by higher headquarters. Why? You. Well, because I mean, a B fifty two, we're going to use a nuclear delivering vehicle to drop bombs. You know, in a in a close air support mission, I I just don't think the I don't think the trust had been been established yet uh, because by this time we had second, third, fourth, you know, ODAs going in, um, not as successful with their close air support mission because uh, they did not have a, uh, a, you know, an Air Force combat controller, an Air Force TAC-P with them. Um, we had an accident with uh, with an Air Force tac B calling in a, a strike on their own target, on their own coordinates. So there wasn't, you know, you, you build trust through credibility and having the director of of the of the CIA and Afghan Afghanistan operations at the time co-located right with me in the tower and telling him hey we need we need bomber support and for him to have the ability to call the president and ask that um, I'm sure I pissed a lot of people off uh, by doing that um, but that night we had b-52s and then we were able to call in b-52 with hundreds of thousands of pounds of bombs, dumb bombs, not smart bombs, dumb bombs, <laughs> Vietnam era war bombs, you know, on there. But our, our, our team was, we had, we had, we had established, you know, that we knew what we were doing. We knew the coordinates we had, you know, everything working for us and we would just decimate the enemy that way. And, and, uh, all things considered, you know, we, we were a mission that was successful with, with no injuries, um, no loss of life of friendly, uh, either American or Northern Alliance. Um, we had some really close calls, but uh, one of my friends just said to me, one of my, my executive director for Project Novat, Lau Rosine, said to me at this last event, he goes, man, you are always the calm in the storm. And Mark, that goes right, you know, goes right back to what you said in the beginning, man. If if anybody was ever to give me a compliment, badass would not be the compliment because I'm a fat ass. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: It would be be calm during a storm, you know, and I used to brief that as a command chief. You know, my job is to make you feel comfortable when it's uncomfortable. And that's just what it's all about. Be comfortable when it's, uncomfortable or be the calm in the storm. And, and that's how we, that's how we did it. We, we execute it and we operate it with professionalism.
1: I, I again, it, it's so hard when you, it's 175 sorties. So again, it, it's impossible. You know, they all must run together at some point. Um, but still, you know, the, the idea of knowing that you are sort of the angel on the shoulder of people on the <laughs> ground and they, they literally depend on you for their own security and safety is, is an, is a awesome, but you know, nearly incredible responsibility. Uh, and that calm that you talked about is, is, is certainly required. Were you, were you, did we have the technology at that point in time to watch the strikes as they hit? Were you able to see everything land as you were firing it or calling for it rather?
0: Yeah. Through, through a scope, we, we had no ability at the, t- I mean, the, the stuff that, the guys in the ladies have today is just absolutely
1: incredible.
0: right <laughs> i i am so glad they have that to, to to make war you know more effective um but now we you know the agency had the agency had predators and drones with with you know that they they could watch what was going on and you know in the case of john chapman's you know medal of honor stuff you know one of the one of the first and only actions of you know on the objective that were, you know, Medal of Honor objective, Medal of Honor actions that were recorded. Um, But no, we, we on the ground didn't have the ability to, to see anything from above. This is, this is all back to, you know, you know, sniper scope technology of looking through the scope and seeing where the target is and using a laser range finder to, to, to identify it, marking, you know, its location, the distance and direction back to our location in establishing coordinates a 10 digit, you know, coordinate where it was at. I mean, shoot, if we had all that, if, if we would have had all the technology we have now back then, that that would have been about a three day fight.
1: Wow. Unreal. When do you find out that you're getting the silver star for everything you guys did? Uh, I was not
0: awarded the silver star until
1: 2004.
0: Okay. Um, I, uh, decorations don't, I, I, I just, uh,
1: I get it. Uh, I, I get it. I'm just, yeah. I, I, for the audience sake, I'm not, you know, it, it, look, it, it's, there's not a whole lot of them passed out with good reason, right? They They, they yeah. don't hand them out like candy. It's not Halloween. So from that it, standpoint, it was
0: 2004, it was, um, you know, we were the quiet professionals and, mm-hmm. and the stuff we did, we signed a non-disclosure at the time when we came out of the field and, Went into isolation, and you know Joan Jett was playing over there for the USO. In fact, we were still such a secret deal that you know Joan Jett had to come into our isolation tent and you know perform a quick <laughs> astu- acoustic you know performance for us, and completely appreciated that. I mean, the what the, song the, did the she play to get to meet Joan Jett?
1: What song did she but, play?
0: Um, oh my gosh! Well, her her voice was really hoarse from doing the the USO concert, uh-huh. but she just saying like uh, you know just a couple little tunes I don't really remember the tunes but um but just meeting her was really incredible because she was such an amazing woman and and to hear her story and what she had been through and then to come over there to volunteer to come over there you know at the at the height of the the war basically that really said a lot about her but um, we all signed non-disclosure at you know NDAs and um, later, a few months later, we, we deployed back to our units and we refit, rekit, got ready to, you know, kick ass and, you know, keep sending people in 2003 came up. It was the height of Iraq and yeah. I had moved into a, a different position. I moved into being, a, a, a trainer for our advanced course. So I was getting the guys coming right out of combat control school and, you know, getting them their advanced certification so they could over in Afghanistan or Iraq and be effective and and then just uh, um, started speaking up in the Pentagon and D.C. about why we needed better equipment. Um, uh, the Air Force kind of made me their poster child and just said, we need you to go in front of the Senate Arms Committee and talk about what you did, because if you become so secret and you're behind that glass, you don't get funding. And that's what you'll, uh, you know, my opinion, never being at a JSOC unit, my opinion, you know, is, you know, that's why you see more about some of the stuff behind the, the curtain. Um, because if you don't advertise that or you don't show the capability to the people that write the checks, then you don't get money. And And that's why we have, um, that's why we have that equipment. That's why we have the ability to see, you know, C2 elements can, can direct and, Uh, execute a mission from hundreds and thousands of miles away because they can look down at that target because there were people like Rick Driggers who were up on Capitol Hill, you know, fighting to get us money and working with technology units to to get us that equipment to make, you know, batteries lighter, radios lighter, uh, laser rangefinders more accurate, GPS is more accurate. You know, the guys complain about, you know the body armor and all the stuff it's too heavy it's too heavy i'm like man you got it you got it so easy now like but you know if we don't if we don't continue to develop ourselves you know professionally and privately you know we become an extinct force and so it's good to see that that's happening but it it, it took some time and then this all of a sudden uh my my leadership said hey Uh, your silver star was approved. And I was, I was kind of taken back because um, I don't think what I did was worthy of silver star action or silver star gallantry. Uh, I just did my job and I did my job to the best of my ability with the 12 other teammates that I was assigned to. And, and if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. Uh, And, uh, and I just like to think that we all had each other's back. And, um, I completely appreciate it, but um, it's something that wasn't expected or that right. uh, did, did I think I deserved.
1: You know, throughout your career, uh, you talk about other operations that you went on. Iraqi Freedom, uh, Resolute Support, Freedom Sentinel, you know, Joint Endeavor, pro- Provide Promise. I mean, it, countless other special operations missions that you go on. Does anything compare to that first one just from a standpoint of, this is what you signed up to be a combat controller for, and you actually got to do it and kick ass at it. Uh, Does anything else kind of raise to that level throughout the rest of your career?
0: Yeah, Mark, I think that's, I think you hit the, man, the key phrase there is compare. So yeah, when you were a young captain, what did you think, you know, like, when you were there doing, doing the mission and everything. And, and there was something you didn't have or a resource you didn't have. And you're like, man, what is the leadership thinking about? You know, how many times did you, how many times did you think that, like, what's wrong with the leadership and what are they thinking about? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, the comparison is, is getting to do my job as a combat controller and, 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 you know, earning some of that respect or some of that credibility with my, with my peers and, you know, getting written about a, a couple things in some books and, you know, but just being with those teammates, man, that was an experience that I'll never forget. That yeah. is something that, that honed my soul or honed me as a, as a human being or as a, as an operator. But I wanted to take that and rather than, you know, some guys maybe let it go to their head or, you know, now they're going to go write books and they're going to live off what they did, man, I don't care what, I did or anybody else did yesterday or today. I care about what you're going to do tomorrow. And so I used that fury and that fight to become a chief master sergeant. I used that fury and that fight to become a command chief. Because when I was that tech sergeant out in the field and I didn't have the equipment or the resources or didn't get approved for the training because one, it was either too expensive or somebody saying, Well, if it comes down to you shooting, then you did a you did a horrible job. You know, you weren't, the, you weren't the combat controller you should have been. Man, I wanted to take all that anger and all that fight of everything that I couldn't have or I didn't have the, the the resources to have and become that chief, become that command chief, be that ear in that commander's, you know, that voice in that commander's ear to say, this is what the guys need. This is what the gals need. This is our job as leaders is to get the resources for those individuals to go do their job. And if we're not doing that, then we don't fucking need to be here. Right. And uh, all that other stuff after that, man, that's that was the, that was the icing on the cake was um, I would love to hear anybody out there, anybody that was was in my leadership team or anybody that was part of any group or wing that I was in, and if, if they have one compliment, it's that they were able to get the resources and the time they needed to do their job effectively, more effectively, while myself and my commander were with them.
1: Yeah, no. And, and I certainly understand that. And from the standpoint of, I mean, that was part of my job uh, while I deployed for the first time uh, was to support all the green berets and get them everything they needed uh, to stay in the fight. And, yeah. and you know, it, it I I always say, and I think you, you kind of understand the same thing as being part of a team. Um, you know, the, the biggest – you don't realize it when you're going through it, like, uh, how pivotal the job is because you're just doing the job. But in retrospect, when you get away from it, you know, I just didn't want to let anybody down. You know, I just didn't want to be the point of failure or the source of – or the reason why something couldn't be completed. Um and, and that that extends well beyond, you know, having someone six with a rifle in my hand. There, there's a lot of other ways that you can be a single point of failure um, that make things more difficult. And, for you know, I just got up every day and worked as hard as I could because I did not want to be ever looked at by any of those guys as the reason something didn't happen. I wanted to be looked yeah. at as the, as the guy that, you know, we, we don't get by without his support kind of guy. Um, yeah, and I,
0: I, I think it's you know I, I think back in the day you know even you know I remember I remember one time being a senior NCO and, and telling a group of airmen that you know at a at a professional military education environment you know where I had every every walk of life airman there and uh, I talked about you know things I did wrong as a as a human as a man as a NCO as an airman um, as a father as a husband uh And I remember getting feedback from the commandant and was like, you know, you never, you never admit your failures in front of everybody and in front of anyone. And I'm like, go fuck yourself, man. I have, I have so many failures. And just like you said, I've been that single point of failure too many times to my, to my daughter, to my wife, to my family, to my friends, to coworkers. And, And I think that makes us, you know, I think that makes us stronger. And if you're not able to, to admit that, man, how how are you going to get better without that critical feedback? It's like shooting steel. If you don't, if you don't hear that ping, you missed. And so, if you can't, if you can't accept your failure and, and get get stronger from it, pick pick your fucking panties up and drive on. You know, that's that's what makes us better.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so again, I'm fast forwarding through a lot, but um, how do you know your career is over after 30 years? Did, did, did the Air Force tell you, or you decided on your own? Yeah. People told me, (laughs) no, I mean, you know, in the air force, it's, it's, uh,
0: you, you get up to the level of being a command chief and I, and I served at the, uh, the O six level. Um, I got to do a, a 14 month deployment down in Afghanistan as the senior enlisted leader for, you know, the air component, the, the, the air force soft, all, all air and, you know, all special tactics downrange. And that was the highlight of my career. Um, I didn't uh you know unless I was going to be the chief mass sergeant in the air force or go serve at some three or four star level you know uh, in the air force it's it's really rare to go beyond 30 years and and it was time um that 14 months in Afghanistan was 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 hard that's 7 days a week 18 hour days there's the only time you have off is when you come back for your midterm leave. And, and then that even makes it tougher going back because you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I putting my family through this? Um, and, and I realized that I, I love the military. I love, I love my brothers and sisters in arms. But I, at, at that point, when I came home for my last year um, in a position, I realized I was showing up every day to make donuts that were never ever gonna get made.
1: Right.
0: And uh man, I then I I self-identified and said, Yep, yeah, it's it I am no longer useful, I am no longer productive. It is time for me to punch out because you see those those officers and those senior NCOs that you look at them and go, Man, you should have got out a few years ago. I didn't, I didn't want to be that. And I wanted to get into Uh, a nonprofit world that would help our veterans and their families and use some of my speaking ability, some of my connections, um, to raise money and do good things for, for those families. And so it, I knew when it was time, I, I think we all do. Some people don't. Um, but I had some good leaders go, Hey, um, we we think it's time for you to retire.
1: You know, I got. To, I mean, honestly, that is that is the best conversation that you don't want to have, but that every real leader wants somebody to tell them. Yeah, right. Like I'm at the point again. I'm coming up on on 23 years, and I've said it repeatedly. The minute I am no longer a value to the organization, somebody tell me. Right. Just sit down and deliver the news to me. It's not the end of the world. I know you think it's a hard conversation to have. But in reality, if I respect you and you respect me, it's not a difficult conversation to have. And after all these years, after all the time that that you've put in, all you want to do is be treated like an adult and not a child. And it's really (laughs) okay to say, you know what, Will? It's time to move on. It's time to move on to the next phase of your life, man. You know, you're going to be okay. You've done some amazing things. But guess what? It's just, it's time. Life is phases. And, And it's okay to have that conversation. And I really wish we would have more leaders in our organization Who are willing to say that because we let people hang on for so, so long. And we're afraid to tell them, dude, go pass in, go, go, go enjoy retirement, go bake cookies, go, go, go play with your kids, go do something other than what you're doing right now. But it's, you know, we live in a, we work in a transitional organization, whether it's just command, whether it's a job, whether it's a post, it just moves every two or three years, everything moves. Yet when someone gets to 25 years, we're afraid to tell them, dude, time to go. (laughs) Yeah. It's the, it's the worst phenomenon I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know as a as a young chief and well, I I don't want to say young chief, but as a brand new chief and you know command chief, I had to have that conversation with you know some of the some of the lieutenant colonels and some of the yeah. you know aging former enlisted majors and you know some O sixes that were just trying to hang on for that star and you knew they were never ever going to get there and, and the same goes on the enlisted side. There were there were tech sergeants that just you know squeaked it out to 20 E6s and some E8s and E9s that you know we don't we don't call them by their rank mm-hmm. because they were an E8 or E9 and man they should have left a, a little bit ago but I was fortunate like like you said Mark to have I had that person I had that that mentor in my ear going Charlie Mike it's time.
1: Yeah. And, and I respected
0: that and I pushed the button that day.
1: Yep. Uh, you you don't have to tell me twice. I'm not going to argue with you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm smarter than you the first time. We got
0: such, you know, like everybody's so worried about like, Oh, the, the next generation, they don't, they don't, they're not as hard and they don't know, man, our, our next, our, our, like, I look at the, some of the people I still stay in contact with that are E9s now and they were, you know, E6s, E5s and they're freaking rock stars and they're so smart. They got, double master's degrees. I got PhDs. I mean, we have, we have the smartest, most intelligent, um, you know, force coming up behind us that I I'm afraid that if I had to go back through as a young person, I, I, I wouldn't be a combat controller. I'm, right. I'm not smart enough to make it. Yeah. I was too dumb to feel pain, but I was, I'm definitely not smart enough to make it through what, um, these young men and women are going through now, man. It is just amazing.
1: Yeah. Amazing. I'm- After you got out, and allow me here, I'm not going to, you know, try to make you feel too uncomfortable, but uh, in 2018, you were inducted to the United States Air Force Gathering of Eagles, uh, 2021 Air Commando Association Hall of Fame and the U.S. Special Operations Command Commando Hall of Honor inductee. So obviously, congrats. And again, that speaks to uh, what you accomplished over 30 years, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention that as part of everything else that you have done in your career, but now it's post-career, uh, and you've dedicated your life to uh, helping veterans. Again, you were former director of operations for the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, uh, currently the CEO and founder of Project One Vet at a Time, and the executive director of the Patriot Fund. So let's focus on uh, Project One Vet at a Time as you founded it. What's the genesis of it? Why, why was this baby born? Uh, and what are we trying to accomplish with it?
0: Well, it was, you know, what? If I can ask, I mean, you, sure. you receive some type of VA compensation and pension, correct?
1: I do, yes. I am yeah. in, in the midst of, of fighting with the VA right now for yeah. a whole variety of different things.
0: Okay. So I, I, I believe you were probably one of those guys when you got out, you know, and you had your VA brief and you did your C&P, your compensation and pension examinations, you probably went into those and said, man, I'm, you know, I, I've avoided the flight surgeon. I've avoided the doc my entire career because I wanted to be able to stay on target. And so when I went to those, I was like, I'm good. I'm good. You
1: know? Yeah. No, and, well full disclosure, I I after my first deployment where a lot of my injuries and everything stemmed from, I didn't I just like I just want to go home. Like I'm done. Like <laughs> I don't need to talk to you. I just want to go home. I'm done with this. I need a break. Uh yeah. and and it was after my second deployment that I had to go to the VA for something, I forget what it was. And, and when I tell you, Will, that I, I would not even be on disability today if the sweetest, nicest lady at the, at the Baltimore VA did not literally hold my hand and walk me through the entire building to stop at this desk and that desk, fill out this thing, fill out that thing. And she did everything for me. If she doesn't do it, I'm not even on disability today. That's how I got where I am. Yeah. She's like, she told me, she, you need to do this right now. She's like, what do you have to do right now? I'm like, I don't know. She said, like, you, you're going to stay here. We're going to go through this whole thing together until you don't without it, it, Listen, the VAs gets a lot of get banged around a lot, but every now and then you find that diamond in the rough. And she was certainly one of them.
0: Yeah. And the, and the VA is filled with incredible people. Yes. I mean, there are just incredible people there. And I think what the, what, what the, the stem of the issue is, is we're so used to having everything done for us. And when we get out, we actually have to do something and, Man, a lot of the guys and gals don't follow through with stuff, and that's where that's where stuff gets fall between the cracks. But the biggest thing was, I retired, got my got my rating uh, with all the things that had happened to me and 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 that were wrong with me, physically, psychologically. You know, finally, you know, able to admit some of the psychological stuff I'm going through. I just said, man, I, I, I'm having a hard time. And, and I got out with 100%. It wasn't total and permanent. But then uh, 18 months later, I went for another VA appointment, uh, a, a checkup. And in seven minutes, a nurse determined that I had gotten better because I had a good day that day. And a uh, uh, couple months later, I receive a, a letter from uh, the VA and says, you've been reduced to 30%. So now my wow. health care is gone. My compensation and pension that's added to my retirement is gone. And I accepted it at first. I was like, oh, well, I guess that's where I should be. And I found out this happened a lot to um, our veterans into uh, veterans that were in much worse shape than I was. And then I found out that there's law firms and there's services out there that will help you. Um, and they say they don't charge, but they do. And if there's any type of back pay you get, they take a portion of that back pay. If there's any increase in your compensation and pension, then they will take a portion of that until they feel your bill has been paid. And I just thought that was absolutely criminal. It took me a year to reach out to some very close friends, uh, Jeff O'Hara, Dr. Mark McLaughlin, Ed Hockley, uh, to ask for help and to, to take the fight to the enemy, which at the time, in my eyes, was the VA. Later, I found it was actually myself who did that detriment to myself. And uh, we fought the VA. Uh, we had a hearing. And the hearing was, it was a conversation. And it was so simple. It was so simple for something, you know, they made it so hard. We made it so hard. And it was so simple to, for them to look at me and go, yep, this was a clear and unmistakable error will increase your benefits back up to 100%. In fact, your total impairment, you probably won't ever have to worry about this again. And that evening, we had a good glass of scotch.
1: <laughs>
0: and And I was, man, I was emotional. I was sobbing because all I could think about was all the other people out there. Mark, yourself, you're one of them. You're one of them that, this is something so simple that could be fixed, but the process, the bureaucratic process is making it so hard. And if you try to go ask for help somebody, they're going to charge you for it, which is criminal in itself. And if you don't know how to dot the I's and cross the T's, you could take, you could end up taking a reduction. And so these people sat around me and they said, fucking do something about it. It's amazing. Um... So. We started this, and so we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. Fifty-seven veterans have gone through our program. Every single one of them have been increased to the point where they should be of what they earn and deserve. It doesn't mean they're 100%. Right. But we've helped Vietnam vets. We've helped Gulf War vets. We've helped vets that have fought the VA for years and years. We've gotten veterans back pay in excess of one hundred to $200,000, wow. and we didn't take a dime. We cover every expense That it takes to flying them out to see a specialist, to making sure their records get copied. We walk them through the process and we have a great legal team that we work with. And we have a great medical consultant that we work with. In fact, my medical consultant is Scott Zastro, The 18 Delta that I was on the team triple nickel with. Like, how can I not trust that brother in arms to help our veterans through this fight? And man, we get our veterans to what they deserve and what they have earned every single time. And it's a process, but man, not one penny comes out of their pocket. If they get any type of back pay, not one penny comes out of their pocket because we and my team are good at talking to people with money that wanna help our veterans. And man, every single of those dollars that come in, go to supporting those vets. We do this volunteering. And man, I'm gonna put it out there. And this is probably the first time in public I'll put it out there. But if you're a retired officer or senior enlisted leader that is working for a veteran nonprofit and you're one of those officers in those nonprofit and you're receiving a salary, you're fucking wrong. Because this is still your charter as a leader to help our veterans and their families. And you should be doing this for free. So every single one of them fucking dollars that comes into that nonprofit goes to helping those vets. And this is probably, yep, Mark, this is it. This is the first time I have said this in public. I've said this to a lot of people, but this is the first time I've said this in public. And if you're not doing that for free and making sure that our veterans get what they earn and deserve, whether it be education, disability, compensation, pension, housing for our homeless vets, if you're collecting a salary and you're working for a nonprofit, you're wrong.
1: Wow. Because we do this
0: voluntarily. And it's still our charge as officers and as senior NCOs to do
1: this. I mean, just powerful words. Um, And and the passion comes through, and I certainly see it and obviously can hear it. And uh, what you guys are doing at Project One Vet at a Time uh, is exactly the kind of organization that we need out there. And as I go through this process um, with the VA, and I've started to learn what, quote, VA math is. Um, <laughs> the doculator, yeah, I don't, you know. So I mean, like, it's one of those things where p- people who are wondering, who are not military, we're chuckling about. But like, you can get fifty percent disability for one thing and fifty percent disability for another thing, and guess what? You're not a hundred percent disabled, right? Like, so just understand that that is VA math at its finest, uh, and I'm learning that the hard way right now. um But again, we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk offline uh, about all that. So, um, a- after project one vet, uh, you're also the D- executive director of the Patriot fund, uh, more on that, please.
0: Yeah. Mark, just one thing back to Project that. Sure. So we're, a, we're a referral system. And that's the way I find that, you know, bona fides credibility and all that. That's how you find good people and you surround yourself with good people. So project one vet at a time, isn't something you apply for. You can look at our website. Our website is designed just to get people to come and donate. And that's what we want our our the way we take on our veterans is we put a veteran through the program and if they like what we did for them we require two things of them we require a testimonial so we we can tell other people about the stuff we're doing and then we require a name because every single one of us knows somebody that's hurting and somebody that isn't where they deserve and earn and so they give us the name of that individual and we bring them on and so mark i would like to bring you on to Project we would like to take a look at your case and we would like to get you to where you have earned and deserved.
1: Well, thank you. I'm I'm humbled. And I certainly appreciate it. And uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll talk more offline, but it's project OVAT O V as in Victor, dot org. project OVAT.org. If you guys want more information uh, go there. And yeah, I mean, again, it's a, you learn a lot when you go through this and, and part of me realizes why I waited after 2021, um, 2012 is when I first started and it took 19 months for my first initial thing to come through. Uh, I know why I've waited, you know, uh, another eight years before I even tried again. And part of it honestly is, and, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of things, you know, in, in my personal story that, you know, uh, we, we can reserve for another time, but, you know, a, as you realize where you are and things, but as I'm coming to the end of my military career, I wanted to do it now before I officially ended my career, uh, when I still had access to a lot of things and systems that were right at my fingertips, that if they asked for a document, I could easily get access to it, not have to chase it down. So that was part of it. Um, You know, I'm starting to realize that I'm at the end of my, uh, my career. It's if I get one more promotion left, fingers crossed, uh, God willing, you know, uh, it'll probably be it. And it'll be sayonara for this uh, for this old guy. Um, But that was part of the reason why. I wanted to do this now where I am, but it did take a long time to get there. So I encourage everybody, don't wait. I mean, it's, there's always reasons to put this stuff off, but it's, it's organizations like uh, Project One Vet at a Time that, you know, that really um, are the, the sort of nudge we need. Uh, to use an airborne analogy, it's the kick in the middle of the back out the door, right, <laughs> that you need to get out of the aircraft. Uh, and once you start falling, you're like, okay, you know, we want, we're not going to stop till we get on the ground kind of deal. So it's the best analogy I could come up with. Yeah. But anyway, go back to, I'm sorry, go back to the, uh, the Patriot fund because there's more there as well.
0: It, exactly. As the title says, man, it's the Patriot fund. We fund Patriots, you know, and we're basically, I don't know. My, my, my president and, you know, my board that is, is above me. Um, I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the, the, the colorful person on the team because the Patriot fund stood up as a, as the Patriot Fund Invitational up in New Jersey. And it was, it was a great event. It was a golf event. And when I was with the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, which has an incredible mission, man, putting, you know, the, the, the kids of fallen special operators and, you know, anybody under the SOCOM umbrella, you know, putting them through college and and making sure they get the education they need to become better humans. And, you know, that's what their father and mother would have wanted. But that was one of our main supporters was the Patriot Fund. And, uh, group of individuals, you know, uh, wealth managers and, you know, retired generals and team, you know, team owners. And uh, they just wanted to do good things for Patriots. And they wanted to make sure that the money they were raising was going to good causes. And, uh, as I, as I broke away from the foundation and, and stood up project OVAT with, with my team, um, the, the, the good men and women there at the Patriot Fund uh, said, hey, we're we're behind you. We we believe in the mission you're doing. In fact, we want to find more veteran nonprofits that are doing what you're doing. And so right now, currently, we're I think we're right at 23 veteran nonprofits that we support. And we have a due diligence committee that's run by a retired major general, Steve Hashem. And, and man, he's the bulldog. He's the bulldog on the team. He gets in these veteran nonprofits, uh, books and records, and he wants to know what the salaries are and he wants to know what the budgets are. And, you know, you hear the term, Oh, 93 cents of every dollar goes to that's all bullshit. That's all bullshit, man. There's, you know, there's operational costs, but you know, and it takes money to run a nonprofit and you have to pay people. We pay consultants to do our medical stuff. We pay consultants to do our legal stuff uh, we pay an accountant to keep us legal, to keep us right. Those th- things like that cost money, but to, to presidents and CEOs and these executive officers that are just collecting these outrageous salaries, man, that that just that money could be used so much better. And and these individuals are are high end individuals that can go off and do they can do consulting jobs and they can have other jobs where they're supporting their family. I get it, you need to support your family, but man, let's let's call a spade a spade and let's get the money to where the money needs to go into those agencies that are going to support those veterans. And so we look at the the veteran organizations we support and, you know, they don't have, you know, their, their, their mom and pop operations working out of, out of, you know, garages and, you know, spare bedrooms at our offices. And, you know, they're doing everything they can to make sure that the, you know, from homeless vets to canine service dogs, to, um, education to, um, you know, just doing good things for veterans and their families and, and in that due diligence, you know, committee, make sure we pick the right ones. And so when these, these, these high-end donors want to come to us and say, I want to make sure my money is going to the veteran organizations. I am interested in a canine service dog, you know, organization. A lot of times we direct the money directly to those organizations, but we provide fundraisers across the nation. We raise money. Uh, we just had a big Veterans Day event down in Naples, Florida. We raised uh, um, just about three hundred and sixty thousand dollars. We supported four organizations locally there that will directly benefit, and then um, that the rest of the money goes back into our organization so we can pump that out across these organizations. And at the end of the year. We provide a disbursement check to these organizations that, man, they're counting on us. You know, their operations count on the, the check that we're going to give them. And uh, man, it's just such a great thing. When you hear these, these success stories of a service dog getting named after a fallen teammate, that is, you know, this guy has been waiting or this gal's been waiting in line to, to get a service dog and they're maybe on the verge of suicide and man, that organization gets to give this individual a call and say, hey man, we, we got the money. Like we, we just got paid. So we can get you into the program and we can get you and keep you alive and keep you highly functionable and, and keep your family happy, man. There's this there's this no better thing. And so Mark, I'm sorry, a long, no, long answer no, to your it's... question, but the, the Patriot funds it 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 is exactly what it what it says. Man, it is a fund
1: for Patriots. It's it's 100 percent. I mean, it, it's it's a big part of why uh, certain VSOs are, are successful. And so from that yeah. standpoint, you know, it's it's really important to hear about what they do and, and how they can help and, and things of that nature. But look, I mean, uh, 30 years in uniform doing one of the toughest jobs that the military has to offer. Um, and in, in the post years since that, taking on other tough jobs that the the veteran space has to offer, uh, is clearly par for the course for your mentality and your, your entire career. So uh, I'm glad we got people like you in the position that we do right now, um, fighting for what's right, fighting for people who, who can't fight for themselves or don't know how to fight for themselves, uh, and giving them the, the, the roadmap and the way ahead. And, um, you know, the energy that you have is is contagious, and uh, I kind of want to run through a wall here after, uh, <laughs> after hearing all this. So, um you know, but that said, again, man, it's it's been great talking to you and hearing everything about uh, your experience and everything that you went through. And at the same time, um, you know that, that that command chief comes out in you, but it, but it comes with, with a, the perfect amount of humility and, and understanding about your role and, and being part of a team. Uh, and I don't think that ever loses you. You know, that doesn't ever go away from you. That's always sort of the foundation uh, for everything that you do in your career. Um, and so, even if you are screaming and yelling, uh, it's all for the right reason. And I think that's that's fantastic, man. It really is.
0: Excellent, Mark. I, 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 truly appreciate this, uh, this time and man, we gotta, you know, we gotta help our veterans. We, there. it, it is, it's tougher now and it's, it's going to get tighter in budgets. It's going to get harder to get yeah. compensation and pension and these benefits that these, you know, these, these men and women have earned and deserved. And it's not, and, and by the Them getting it, they're not taking it away from anybody else. And that's the the mentality, you know, of a lot of our guys and gals are like, well, I don't need it. You know, I got a good job. Um, You know, I don't need it. I don't want to take it away from somebody else. You're not taking it away from somebody else. It is a benefit. It is a right that you have earned by serving our country. And by goddamn, we're going to get it to you.
1: And and not only that, it's just kind of short sighted in that sense. Like right now, you might not need it. But what about 15 years down the road, when something in your body or your health takes a turn for the worse, or your life takes a turn for the worse? You know, there's no you don't. That's not the time you want to be trying to take care of it. You know, Uh, and so um, yeah, I, th- I thought way the same way. way. The it's be. I thought the same way after I'm like, I don't need it. I'm fine. There are other people, you know, people have missing limbs and everything. Go, go help those people. I'm fine. And, and then you realize as you get a little bit older, a little more life experience that fine is always a relative term. Um, you know, and, and things are going to change around you and circumstances are going to get beyond your control. And, um, uh, you're foolish not to take advantage of what you said as a benefit that you have earned, that we all have earned. And, and there is, there, there's value in that. And we shouldn't, um, not take advantage of it just because we don't feel like we need it. But uh, again, just an incredible career. I certainly appreciated the time. Love talking to you and and love your honesty and your passion. And it's been amazing getting to learn about everything that you've done and your career. It's hard to encapsulate 30 plus years in uniform in the time that we did. So I hope we did that part of service, but I certainly know we did your post-military career life of service as well. So uh, again, thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, Markham, to you and your
1: team. Thank you. Well, Mark, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've
0: been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts.